I'm here today with Chris Savage, the CEO and co-founder of Wistia, a company that pretty much everyone involved in B2B marketing, certainly video marketing, knows about and admires. Chris has a fascinating story to tell because he created Wistia back in 2006 with angel investment. He then used at least one round, I think two though, rounds of debt financing in order to buy the company back. And ultimately Wistia was acquired for two, I think 250 million. We're gonna talk about all aspects of his journey today, everything we have time for. And Chris, thank you so much for joining us. So one clip, so we have not been acquired. Oh, okay. So I, so I messed that up. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So where did I get that? Is that uh... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have a friend who got their business acquired for 200 million recently. That might be what you saw, but no, we, we are very much independent. All right. Well, I, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll fire my, my, my lead researcher. And... <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a round of layoffs. That's a first. I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think, you know, there, there's so many news stories around Wistia. I must have, uh, yeah, I, I must have been overloaded with, uh, with Wistia news. Either way, you've got a fascinating story to tell. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, you know, why don't we, why don't we, why don't we start setting the record straight? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, so you have a lot of it right. We raised two angel rounds um, in 2008 and 2010 for a total of 1.4 million. Never raised more equity money. Um, scaled the business the old-fashioned way. It's funny, someone called me today. Uh, some I just called my personal cell phone, and I picked up like an idiot because even though I didn't recognize the number, and they're like, "Hi, this is this person from like you know some investment firm. You know, I've been looking into research into Wistia, and like, um, are you okay? Like, have you raised money?" And I'm like, actually, we haven't raised institutional money. Like, it's just angel money. She's like, oh, I'm sorry about that. And I was like, um, have you? Do you looked into us at all? Because, because like, we got really big without raising that money. Yeah. She's like, what? Oh, okay. And it's just like, it's it's confusing. Yeah. Um. But in any case, uh, and we then yes, we did raise debt in 2017. We raised, um, 17.3 million, um, to buy back control. Basically, get a return for our investors and our early employees. Um, and to set the business up to be very, very long-term focused and to be independent, um, which has gone super great. Okay, so um, so why don't we talk a little bit about that? How, when you started Wistia back in 2006, did you immediately do an angel round or were you bootstrapped no, in the first? No, we bootstrapped. Um, I mean, I didn't even really know what angel financing was. Um, it, it was even an option. And so my co-founder, Brendan and I, like we had saved a little bit of money in the previous couple of years. Um, and we put our finances together and we said, how long can we survive? And we're like, all right, we think we can survive six months. We're like, well, all right, well, our plan better be, let's do this for six months. And uh, if we run out of money by then and we fail, okay, let's just, we won't really tell anyone we did this. We'll just fail in obscurity. And um, if, maybe we'll be sold by then maybe we'll sold the company like i just had no you know it seemed at the time like well if we do this for a month or two we should understand if there's something here and of course the truth is that much more complicated you do something for two months and you get some positive signals you get some negative signals and like you're not you you have to decide like how much do you trust your instincts how much do you trust you know what you've learned in the market all that kind of stuff um and yeah it took us about two years from starting before we raised angel round and we okay. had customers, we were cash flow positive. Um, we were able to pay our basic living expenses and our server costs and stuff like that. But we raised money because we had a couple of people we wanted to hire. Yeah. And we did the math. We thought it might take us like three years to get there. 
and it felt like we were actually in such a big market and such a big space. We just needed the help. Okay. So how many team members was it for that first two years before you, before you first took years on the Angel? Two of us. Okay. And you were able to build out the product and get it launched and generate revenue just yep. with two people. That's fantastic. So then, so then, um, I'm at, what, what was that? What was that first two years like? Were you, you know, how were you keeping the lights on? Was 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 it enough revenue to to pay yourself a so decent it, amount? So so no. Um, the first year was like so we've been in video the entire time. Like the thing, the reason we started the business is we saw tech changing. Um, online video was was now easy to encode, mm -hmm. and before this time period, it was not. So. Um, there was open source tools, FFmpeg, um, which is a, a, a you know a, a open source um, tool that anyone can use to encode videos. And at the time, the magic was encoding videos into Flash video, mm -hmm. and that's what YouTube was doing. And they were re we saw them really early. And the key insight was anyone can upload; they don't have to think, and it just works. And I had studied film and video in college, and I had made a lot of uh, short films and worked on some feature films and stuff. And no one knew how to get shit online. Like, they're actually really confused. It was really stressful. It's like, oh, will I get this in the right format? Because if you, it was a moment in time where you could make a video, put it on a website, for you it would work. And it wouldn't work for anybody else. And, that, and you had no idea. And so it was very stressful. And so all these, like, filmmaking communities and stuff I was a part of back then, um, people weren't sharing their stuff. Like, there was fear and confusion. And that changed with this open source tech. And so that's why we started the business. And we had some different ideas for how we were going to start, um, what our product was going to be. And as that hit reality, it was like within the first two months, our first idea was a clear failure. But we stayed in video and kept trying, kept going. And it took us a year to get our first paying customer, basically. And uh, that customer came to us um, through a friend who knew that we were focused on online video. And they were asking for something we didn't do. And they said, can you advise us on this? And we went in and talked to them and we, well, we said, well, actually, we've thought about a product like this. We've built something kind of similar. But what we made at that time was for filmmakers. Um, you can imagine trying to you know, solve this problem that I had as a filmmaker. Um, and this was a medical device company. Mm -hmm. And so they did not want a filmmaking product. And we said, we can make something for you, um, actually. And it'll take us like two weeks. And here's some prices. Would you pay these prices? Like, don't pay us to consult. Pay us to be be a customer. And they said, if you deliver this product, yeah, we'll pay you. And so we made the crappiest, most minimal thing you've ever seen in two weeks. It did almost nothing, but it solved the core problem um, that this medical device company had. And they signed up and they started paying $400 a month. And then as we realized, oh, wait, no one's focused on, at the time, no one's focused on private video sharing and secure stuff on the web. You could use like an FTP server, but you had to be more technical. Mm -hmm. You had the same playback problems I was talking about before. And so like, who else should we talk to? And we, you know, talked to, actually I went back to one of those film and video companies and said, hey, instead of trying to help you like hire people or run these competitions, what if we just help you share unfinished video? And, it, and instead of sending a DVD, you can use this. And they're like, that's great. So they, you know, then we got production companies signed up and then we went to a meetup and we got a, um, a company that was doing learning in person was trying to figure out how to scale online. They used to send people DVDs. So we were competing with DVDs at this point. And um, it was very, it felt slow because it was like one new customer each month. In hindsight, it happened so fast. And, you know, six months later, we were basically cash flow positive. So we were covering all our server costs. 
We were also covering our basic living expenses. Our office was in our house and we were starting to, the business account was like starting to save uh, cash. And um, yeah, so it was very exciting. I remember when we, we went from like not being able to afford new computers to like three months later, like, oh my God, we can buy a Mac mini. This is sweet. Uh, and then we, the, the demand was, even though it was like on an absolute basis, pretty small number of customers, um, you know, we were talking to HBO, we were talking to PBS, we were talking to all these uh, Cirque du Soleil was like customer number five for us. It was, wow. it was ridiculous. Um, and it was also terrifying because we thought, wow, these people, like they're actually trusting us and relying on us. Like we need help and we need people who've done some of this stuff before because for context, like I was 22 when we started. And you know it's it's a magical thing to be naive and to be 22 and think you can do all this stuff. Uh, we, I never could have started if I knew just how hard it would be. Um, but we also knew some people who've done some of this stuff before are going to really help us, and that's what caused us to think, hey, maybe we should raise money to accelerate some of this stuff. And so, when you decided that you wanted to raise some money, did you? How did you go about it? It was really organic. I mean, it was literally one of the people we wanted to hire um, was like, hey, have you talked to? this guy or that guy, uh, they're investors. And I went and talked to them and they're like, this is interesting. And I thought, cool. And we just, you know, it just kind of happened. Probably took like four or five months to pull the round together and get lawyers and figure out what our roles were and all that kind of stuff. Um, but again, in hindsight, like it happened like relatively quickly at a time when, you know, we were so early stage to be clear. I mean, when I talk about covering expenses, the revenue when we closed that first round was $1,600 a month. Wow. And um, like Brent and I were paying ourselves basically nothing, but we didn't care at all because we were living in this house, 10 people, our expenses were super low. You know, we had everything we needed. We we're just so excited to be doing this. But when I think about those investors investing at that time, like that was pretty wild that they did yeah. that and pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, so you were living with 10 people in that, in that house. Um, obviously, and, and only two of you were working on Wistia. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Was that, were they, were the other eight people? Did you, were you guys all on top of each other? Was it uh... well, it was interesting. Um, it was a big house. Um, and it, I lived there for four years. Brendan, my co-founder lived there for like nine years. And, uh, it's at first it was this like random collection of friends and friends of friends. And then over time it turned into some people left and more people came and it became our social network. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was actually a really great deal because Brent and I would work all the time. People talk about when you do a startup, you have to sacrifice your family and friends. You have to sacrifice your health. Like something has to, to give. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing was because we had friends we were living with, we would work every day a ton it would be like 8 30 or 9 at night we'd be done and then we'd go and sit down in the living room and hang out with friends every all, every day so i was like getting this like incredible social experience and um building this company every day and i'll say my health went through ups and downs at that point depending on stress and other things but it was like wow this, some of this is more possible and more fulfilling almost because we're living in this house with so many people that's really interesting. And it, it kind of reminds me when I, when I founded my first company, I was living in a group house in just outside of DC. There was poison ivy kind of growing up the walls. And, yeah. you know, my, my wife, you know, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, yeah. um, you know, 
wasn't too super thrilled about it and eventually you know that that influenced me moving out but but for a time it was really awesome to have this low cost living situation totally. for entrepreneurs you know there there were two other people there that were entrepreneurs working on something else my business partner and I it's fantastic it's you, also you get used to lifestyle whatever the lifestyle is you get used to it and um so I, that felt like a competitive advantage to do it like in this way at this time. So we just got out of college and didn't have that much money. Um, and we were used to college living. So it was almost like right. extending that. But actually, I moved out for the same reason. My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we were living there. And she's like, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> and like, this company's real now. Like, you have a salary. We must have our own apartment. <laughs> I was like, you're right. And we ended up moving around the corner. It was pretty funny. But, <laughs> but um yeah, it's a good reason to move out. Good it's luck. a pretty reasonable position. It's a very reasonable point. position. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you got the angel round successfully. How did things change for Wistia once you once you secured some of that funding? Um, I mean, they changed. We made honestly, we made some bigger mistakes faster. Um, right. And uh, you know, we got that round closed, and our angel investors told us they thought we had an opportunity to go up market, and we'd never done this before. And we only have 10 paying customers or something like that, maybe eight paying customers. I think it was eight um, at that moment. And we're like, well, they know better than us, mm -hmm. so we should listen to them. And because um, we built this big plan of what our revenue would look like if we went up market and yada, yada. And we got, we, of course, we tried to do that and it didn't work. Um, and we got no customers for like six months. And that was stressful. And we started doing board meetings that they, no one was officially on our board, but we thought, oh, we're grownups now. So we should do board meetings. That's what we should do. And I'll never forget being in this, like, we got an office also because we'd been in the house, but we were used to things being cheap. So we got a really cheap office in an extremely inconvenient place. So I started commuting like 45 minutes each way every day, like an idiot. Like, I don't know why. And how, again, I was like, why did I do this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, people <laughs> don't realize how good they have it today if you're starting with remote working, like that that's expectation. It was like, we have to have an office or we're not legitimate. But I'll never forget sitting in this one conference room. We had one conference room and like 600 square feet probably aside from that with me and Brendan and two of our investors having a quote board meeting and look out the window and seeing the two people we'd hired who were actually doing all the work with us and they weren't in the conversation. And I, I was thinking, this doesn't make sense. Like this is, why am I wasting time in this meeting? Like this has, this is adding no value. And so we went to our investors and said, look, we're done with this stuff. Like, we're not going to pretend that we're bigger than we are. Like, we just have to get back to work. Um, and we, ha and we, have to, we have to figure out who our customers are and we have to help them. And we just got, we have to go. And so we, we stopped doing all of that. Um, it's also worth saying that we raised that first round in 2008, right at the beginning of the um, financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And so everyone, you know, it's very similar right now in the sense of like, oh God, you can't raise money. Who's going to buy products? What's going to happen? And actually it just allowed us just like hunker down and work. And uh, so we just got to work and tried everything, you know, iterating on the product, iterating on the messaging, trying marketing campaigns. Um, you know, we did cold calling for a while and I was like, why isn't this working? It's, it's really hard to cold call because people don't know who we are. Wait, we should do marketing so that they understand who we are before we call them. And then eventually, of course, we figured out how to just do marketing and make it completely self-service and got religious about that. But yeah, it's, it's uh, when I look back on that time, it was like a really awesome time and it was really hard. Um, 
but also very similar, I think, to the time we're entering right now of like, if, if you can hunker down and do the work and understand your customer, like they will still buy, they will sign up, they will use new things, they will take risks, they will do that stuff, even when there's a quote recession, um, if you can really find the right problems to solve them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so that, that that's really interesting. Um, did you end up, um, so did, did you did you have to change your financing plans because of the the, the recession? Like, did you yes. plan to do? So some we thought, on? yeah, yeah. Um, we made a forecast that it would have us running out of money in a year, okay. and then as the great financial crisis started to happen, and we were not even totally aware of it, to be clear. Like, I just knew something was bad, and I also knew we started spending money so quickly because we hired these folks, we gave them real salaries, like six figure salaries. That's mm -hmm. what they deserved. Um, and we started paying ourselves real salaries two years in, my co-founder and I, and we'd been making nothing. And I watched you know, our burn go from positive $500 a month, uh, like making $500 a month before we raised around to losing 40 grand a month. Mm -hmm. And guess what? When you're losing 40 grand a month, and you've been making 500, you look and you're signing up customers for like $300 a month, $100 a month, $400 a month. You look at that and you're like, what have I, what have I done? Um, this is, am I gonna lose this valuable thing? That's what we, we felt like. And so uh, Brent and I actually cut our salaries back. We took these new salaries for like three months. And we realized this is so stupid because we don't need the money and this is our business. Um, we should cut our salaries back. And so I think we were paying ourselves 80,000 and we cut it back to 30. We kept mm -hmm. it there for like five years. Um, as we just like fit, because we realized if we figured out the core of this business and got this thing scaling, we of course could make more money in the future and pay ourselves yeah. a higher salary. But if we paid ourselves a high salary and it forced us to raise money and we had to raise money at a time you couldn't or we didn't hit the milestones, we'd have nothing. Yeah, yeah. So that that's really interesting. And you also said something I want to want to return to. So when you first took the money, the angel investment, you then kind of assumed that the angel investors sort of knew what they were talking about. Yeah. And, you know, and so you followed their guidance on let's go up market, try to change kind of the strategy a little bit. Six months went by that really didn't work. At that point, did you really think to yourself, okay, they don't know more than we do necessarily. We need to start really trusting our own yes. you know, judgment. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And I think you get tested with that. Actually, I would say a lot um, as you scale and grow. Um, that was the first time we were tested with like, do we know more mm -hmm. than anybody else? But then as you grow and you hire and you had lots of people and you hire people who have done it before, there's a tendency again to think, oh, this person knows how to do this better than I do. Yeah. And they should. But the key thing is like, how do they do it in your company? How do you, how do you as the expert in your business help others understand where the best opportunities are and where the bad opportunities are and like the, the cultural ways to do things and not to do things. And it's, it's easy to um, underestimate actually how much of an expert you become in your space and your market and your company. Mm -hmm. And I think my advice for lots of folks now, and as I've done angel investing and have lots of friends who have started businesses is like, you are the expert in your company you're the one, you're the expert on your business. You're the probably one of the experts in your market, even if you're tiny. Like if, you're, if all you're doing is spending all your time thinking about this space, it often takes less than you would think to become the expert. So it's your job as the entrepreneur to actually make the decisions. What advice should you take and what advice should you ignore? 
Yeah. You should get lots of different advice. You should get it from people in your business. You should get it from partners. You should get it from customers. You should get it from investors. You should get it from folks who are like other entrepreneurs. But ultimately, you have to make the call. Is this good advice for me or not? Should I do this the way other people have done this or not? And um, that's where the difference is made, right? Is like, because if you take it and it's right, you get through something faster um, or do something better. And if you take it and it's wrong, you can it can be a massive distraction. And so it's it's trying to get that balance, that intuition, right? Is I think just really important. Yeah, I always like to ask: um, Were there any terms that were in the funding round that you regret, or that you think you could have done differently, or do you feel like it was it was all you know essentially the way you should have done it from that perspective? Um, I think given the time, it was basically the way it should have been done. I I think. Um, you know, when we, the only thing that we did, we tried to set ourselves up to be like clean, mm -hmm. uh, from and what I mean by that is like the terms were clean. They were, they were normal. If we were to go raise a series, a, no one would look at our terms and be like, oh, I don't want to invest in this company because, mm -hmm. um, they're just like, it's, they're doing some weird wonky like thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, that meant we get, we actually gave our investors probably more control than we should have. We made their, we ended up making their shares preferred. Um, and they had a board seat and all this other stuff. And again, you know, it was one of those things as we got deeper into building the company and we've been doing it for close to 10 years. Um, and we hit a moment when our investors wanted us to sell. Mm. And I was looking at this as like, Oh, this feels like the beginning. Actually, I know it's been 10 years, but like, it feels like the beginning of this market, the beginning of these changes, like I don't want to sell. And, um, so when we did our buyback, one of the things we did is we actually took those preferred shares and as a part of the process, they got converted into common. Mm. And so, and I think they, and everyone was fine doing it because all the preferred shares were really to protect downside scenarios. I mean, that's okay. what a lot of that stuff is, right? Like someone has a liquidation preference and they give you a million dollars and you think you're worth 5 million, but then you sell for a million dollars, they get their million dollars back. Right. Mm. That's how liquidation preference works. And it's to protect the investor, which I, I understand. Uh, but we had gotten so big by the time that we we're doing the buyback that none of those things were going to matter. Like it was such a small amount of money that was raised. Um, we had proven ourselves as entrepreneurs that our investors were happy that we were going on the path that we were going on. Um, they trusted us. They'd seen us be in hard times and good times. And we'd always done right by folks. And so when that conversion process came up as a part of the deal, people were like, yeah, it, it's funny that it's not like that anyway. Um, so I think that's the, the, the thing I would have done differently is try to have set different expectations up front around what like success looks like and timelines look like. And I couldn't have known how long this would take and how much I would enjoy it. Um, but if I had, if I had an inkling of that, I would have tried to communicate that earlier, uh, because there's some people who invested and thought, you know, we're going to do this for three years. And there were a bunch of people who thought we'd do it for decades, but, um, it, it, that that's where all the misalignment came from. I see. I see. So you, you said something I want to jump to about how excited you were after 10 years and after, you know, 10 years, you felt like it was just the beginning potentially. Was there ever a moment of burnout between, you know, founding the company and now where you questioned whether or not you wanted to, to keep in your, in your role? Um, there, that's a great question. Um, there was a time, so when when we had this opportunity to sell the business, we had three different companies come at the same time and try to acquire Wistia. No. People have always poked around. If you if you have a SaaS company, 
um, people will poke around um, and they'll try to consolidate, you know, different SaaS companies together. They'll think that you're operating it poorly and they can operate it better. There's all these different things that you have something unique that someone else doesn't have. And so people poke around and we had never gotten into any of the conversations around acquisitions when it had happened previously, because we're always so happy. Um, and we're like, no, screw this. Like, we don't want to sell. But this time when these three companies came, uh, we got into the conversations and things got serious and we started talking to them and we started looking at numbers of like, what is this offer going to be and what does this mean? And it was actually those conversations that made Brendan and I realize, wait, why are we even talking to these people? We're like, oh, we're talking to them, it turns out, because we're unhappy. Why are we unhappy? Well, we weren't actually running the, the business the way we felt um, we did our best work. We'd let things slip. We'd, we'd gotten too short-term focus. We weren't taking the creative risks we'd taken before where we felt like we were the real owner. We were almost like just like going through the motions of certain things. So we thought that was like the best practice for SaaS or whatever. And so it was actually looking at the offer and saying like, what would we do if we sold the business? And we said, well, if we sold the business, we'd do our time at this new company. Then we'd leave. We'd start another company together. What space would we be in? Well... We've seen video change so much, like video tech has changed so much, creation videos changed so much, um, people's expectations of videos changed so much, we'd go, we'd go back into video. What problems would we solve? We, there were this list of problems that we'd go after. Who would we hire? We know the people we would hire, they work at Wistia. What type of culture would we want? You know, we're going through the list, we're like, so basically what we're saying is if we sold the company, we would try to rebuild it. And we both said yes, we're like, well, that's stupid. Um, because you know, I know there's luck involved. I, I know there's time involved. Like I'm not an idiot. I understand those things. So it's like, well, maybe we should just fix the problems. <laughs> and, and, um, we're like, yeah, let's just do it. And so we decided not to sell. And then instead we'd get the company to be profitable again, which would allow us to be more long-term focus, which would allow us to make more investments based on our instinct versus like just doing short-term things like to grow mm -hmm. revenue. And um, that's also what caused us to do the buyback because if we said we're not going to sell in this moment and it would be an amazing return for those investors and the early employees, we promised them that someday we'd be valuable. And now we're looking at this thing. Maybe that's a way we can do the reset. Like, and that's what drove us to do the deal. So we did the deal. We focused on all of those things. And then they worked like unbelievably well. And so I, it was like teetering on burnout, I would say, um, mm. or just like not having fun, which is like a, a different version of the same thing. Um, and yeah, that was, that was the time that was like the most acute by far. I see. Were you giving dividends out or were you paying dividends or anything like that kind of throughout at any point throughout no. your growth? Okay. We were not. So and so when you did the debt round, was the, was that exclusively focused on buying out on, on kind of regaining that that control and restructuring yeah. Yeah. and so it, so it was not so the money really was not used for sort of for marketing purposes or for not, like not growth. zero dollars went yeah. in for that that's fascinating um and then did the original angel investors were they all did they all kind of exit or did they did some it was of them a mix so some people got out completely um you know some people took a, like a a return that was um, you know, some multiple of their money and then they left everything else in and some people didn't sell anything. You know, that's the funny thing that happens in moments like this. So mm -hmm. we had people who are like, well, of course what I'd want is something that compounds. I don't need the cash. Like just leave it, leave it in there. And I'm like, okay. So it's like, it was like a spectrum. Um, 
of folks, which is, I think, probably how it always is. But interesting to see it play out because it was still on an absolute basis. We only raised money from 10 people. It's not mm-hmm. like it was like that many people. But yet, even within the 10, I had a few who are like, get me out completely. A few who are half out. A few who are probably 20 to 30% out. And a few who didn't want to sell a thing. I see. I see. Um, so then um, uh, why, why don't we turn for a moment to how you treat, uh, how you kind of think of the role of being CEO of the company. Um, what, what do you, how do you see your role with Wistia? You know, you're, you've been the CEO, I think, continuously mm-hmm. the whole time. You know, what, what, what you know, how, how does your role kind of, how do you define your role with the company? Yeah, I, I see my job as um, I should try to be very long-term focused. Uh, think about what are the different macro level factors in like the economy writ large in our industry, in our market. Um, they're going to have big impacts on us, both negative and positive. Um, and also I, I see my job as like um, to be taking inputs, like operational inputs from folks on the team as to what we can actually accomplish and advice and inputs from people who have a stake or who are um, advisors or whatever that don't, um, you know, that's often your board, your board of advisors, mm-hmm. people who um, don't know what the operational complexity is as to what's possible to try to basically coalesce around like the vision and direction and make it easier to make big decisions. Um, so that hopefully when big decisions do come up, we can make them pretty quickly and feel pretty confident in them. And they're not all going to be right, but like if I have the right balance of inputs, you know, the data on how the business is performing comparisons, benchmarking about how we're comparing to, to other industries, um, new tech that's coming up and trying to understand how it will fit together and ultimately it coalesces around like you know the confidence in the vision the communicating and exciting the team about those things um and the decision making what do you think about company culture and you know uh the do you, you know do you feel like that it's important to try to foster and create an intentional company culture um you know what are your thoughts on that I think if you don't foster an intentional company culture, uh, there will be a culture and you probably will not like it. um, And it will probably not serve you strategically. I mean, I think of culture as how you enact strategy. Mm -hmm. And so there's per, I'm not talking about perks, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm talking about like how you pay people is going to impact the caliber of people that you have. Obviously Mm -hmm. the environment you have is going to impact the, the people you can attract and retain and want to work with you. Um, but ultimately when someone's making a decision and they're making a decision in a Wistia way, we want them, that's a cultural act. And we, and we want everybody to make decisions um, that are praised uh, because they, they align with the strategy and they align with what we're trying to do. And decisions should be punished when they don't align and they're off strategy. And so I think of it as like, you want to be really clear about what you're trying to accomplish you know, the, I don't know if you've ever seen that graphic of like, you know, your job is basically to get, if everyone's a vector, everyone's an arrow in your business, your job is, my job is to try to make sure that they're all going in the same direction after the strategy. But the truth is what often happens is something gets communicated. And for like, you know, the, the next three minutes, the, the arrows are going the same direction. And then they start splintering off in different directions because people have conversations. They're trying to clarify that. And you end up with like, why are we going so slow? I don't understand. Like, why aren't we aligned? Like, why is why are we helping this customer? Because they don't seem like they're our target customer. Or why are we wasting time on that? And it, it just is a natural thing that happens with more people. 
And the way you get more of the arrows, more of the vectors going the same direction is you have very, like, I think, like, really good comms on what, why you're doing what you're doing and ways and formal ways for people to give pushback and ask questions, all that kind of stuff. And you have a culture that reinforces it. And ultimately, it's the, it's the culture. It's the decisions that people make. And it's the actions that you take as a leader that get mimicked because nobody, no, you know, actions really do speak louder than words. And people will see how you act in a meeting. And if you're on time or if you're late or if you make quick decisions or if you don't use research or if you do use research or all those different types of things, those coalesce into like what your culture is. And if, and if you're not really intentional, I think it's, I've, and I've made this mistake at times we've not been as intentional, things can spin out or slow down or you can get confusion, or you're, you have too many customers you're serving, all those different types of things. Um, and so I think like leading on that and being intentional is in, incredibly important. Yeah, what, can you define what, what is the Wistia way? I think you use that phrase. Yeah, so um, I, it's funny, I use that phrase, and I'll also say a good sign that our values are not working is when people say that's Wistia and that's not, <laughs> because like, <laughs> Um, it's a signal of like tenure of like, you're relying on someone who's been here for a while, who knows the way to tell you. And so really we have, we have a set of values that people use, um, to make decisions. And when you're making a really good decision, those values should, you probably should be incorporating all of them, um, into the decision. And it, that, that should be a differentiated thing. Something that makes sense Mm -hmm. to happen at Wistia, something that doesn't make sense to happen somewhere else. And something that aligns um, up into the the strategy of what we're trying to accomplish. Mm. So, um, are there any things that you? I mean, you've now been CEO for for a number of years now. Um, looking back to your early days as CEO, w- were there any things that you wish you knew back then that you know you feel like uh, you know if you could tell yourself your younger self, um, you know, give yourself some advice? What what would it have been? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, uh, I mean, and there's an enormous amount of things. Um, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we could probably spend like just hours and hours talking about the things I would, I would tell myself. Um, I would say a mistake that's really easy to make, which is kind of in the same vein of what we've been talking about with advice and stuff like that is, um, hiring for experience over passion and fit. And, um, you know, we, we've been in the spot where it's like, oh, we need to hire someone who's done this before, right? Because uh, we're trying to do this thing and this company that we know tried to do that thing. So that someone who worked there, someone who touched that, they probably know how to do it. So we should probably hire them. And everyone starts looking for like experience and looking for, you know, on the resume on LinkedIn, like has someone been at this previous company? And then you hire them and it doesn't work. And it's weird. They say they need a team and they need other people and they need all this stuff. And they're like, well, you knew you weren't getting a team. You, you knew you were much smaller and we're at a different stage than that other company. And there's confusion and you know all these complaints about all these other systems not working. And you're like, what the hell is going on? And then I hire someone who's never done that thing before, but they're really smart and they're, and they're really passionate and um, curious, like they have the characteristics we're looking for. Maybe they've done something adjacent, um, or maybe they've been a part of something, but they weren't the person leading it, whatever. In any case, they're stretching that person who's passionate and who's, who you enjoy working with. Um, 
and who's on this like steep growth trajectory, they're going to beat the experienced person every time. And um, I definitely made the mistake of like, you know, swinging too hard towards experience and underestimating just how unique every situation is that we're all in. Um, another example that's concrete is I think a lot of people will look at pricing pages mm -hmm. and say, aha, if, if this person and this company has a pricing page like that, that must be working. So I should copy them. And I've made that mistake of copying other people's pricing. I see people make that mistake with our pricing all the time. Like just last week, I saw the oh, best pricing page out there. Wistia is one of the ones and we're about to do a ma massive pricing overhaul in two weeks. And I know all the reasons why. And I'm seeing someone literally say, if you're going to do it, copy them. And so it's just too easy to do that. And um, yeah, I would say I would tell myself like, don't forget to keep starting from first principles and optimize for people who are passionate and who are on uh, the right trajectory. And also everyone always does their best work when they're stretching. I have never seen someone do A plus work without stretching in some way, whether it's the industry, the size of the team, the scale of the problem, um, whatever it is. Like when you're stretching, you push harder, you do different things. When you're not stretching, you don't. That, that's really interesting. So, and I can relate on the pricing example. Um, so if you're not supposed to look at other successful companies, seeing their pricing pages, how, what, how, what, what would your process be? And, and I really, I'm, I want to ask that knowing that you've got something coming up in the next two weeks. So it's gotta be, uh, yes. So I think like, it, it also depends on, you know, what stage you're at, right? So like yeah. early stage, you can change your pricing all the time yeah. is the truth. And you could change it on every demo you do. You could change it on the website all the time. Um, we used to do changes all the time and we sometimes we just change them on the website. We wouldn't change them in the app. So you could, we would just look at conversion. What's optimized for that. It would be the same pricing in the app. We wouldn't touch it and we'd find the best performing thing on the site. And then we'd roll it through and we'd put it in the app and see if it still was the best performing thing. Um, and of course people do that in demos all the time. I think what you want to look at is like share of wallet. And so what are the other things that your customers paying for and, and, are you in the right ballpark of value creation mm -hmm. for what your service or product is compared to those other things? That I think is a very helpful exercise. And you try to figure out like, are you taking existing budget or are you sw switching and changing something so that you're actually taking new budget? Mm. Um, so I would try to look at that. And then what you wanna do is, I think really go deep on your, on your core customer um, and understand what is it that they actually need and what is it that they don't need? And your goal is to align your business model and your pricing really well tied in with your strategy so that if you, for example, have a free plan that people can get value out of that free plan and they can use in that free plan is hopefully marketing for you. That's what freemium is. But anyone who is getting enough value, which they hopefully like you could take a guess at like, their company's generating more revenue at this moment. If you're in B2B, that's the ideal situation. Like, oh, if they're doing this action enough or they need this particular feature, that probably means that they would actually have more budget and revenue to spend on this. And you just, it's kind of that simple and you just want to align that over time. 
And then the thing that makes it really challenging, especially in a subscription world is as you add more features, the value delivered to customers change. As there's more usage, the value delivery change, delivers, that you deliver to customers change. As there's more people using it, the value changes. And so it's trying to get the balance right between having value metrics that scale, be them features, usage, seats, whatever, without um, hurting the value someone can create too much. Um, and it's, it's a balance. And then when you get it right, there's gonna be some people who tell you that you're too expensive and there's gonna be a bunch of people who tell you nothing, which means you're the right price or too cheap. And it's, it's just a constant evolution. Um, and the other thing I would say is pricing is part of your product. So um, if I come to you with a brand new like M2 MacBook and I say, here's this brand new M2 MacBook. It's the fastest MacBook that's ever existed. It's $20,000. You're gonna laugh in my face. And be like, well, the old one was a thousand, or I can get a Chromebook for you know whatever, three hundred bucks, or whatever. And if I come to you with this new M2 MacBook and I tell you it's a hundred dollars, it you might say this is the greatest computer that's ever existed. <laughs> Same exact product, but the price really matters. And I think we forget that. Yeah. And it's just really, really important to remember that that's part of the product. Um, and the other thing is that you're in a market that's moving if you're in a good market, and so. If a market's moving and changing, you must be willing to adapt your price. You must because it will change how you fit in. Um, will be impacted in your customer's mind by all the other things that are there and the value that they can get. So, it really is something to do it right. You're constantly investing in and constantly updating and constantly changing. Yeah, very very interesting. I think you know one of the themes that it sounds like is that I mean it sounds like you're very data driven and you know um, and that that really is informing quite a bit of what you're you know what you're testing and, and if you can't measure it you can't get the input from from customers all of that yes then then it, the results are going to be very difficult. Yeah, and I would also say on the measurement side, like you got to measure everything, but start with the qualitative and then move to the quantitative. You, can, you know, sorry, go on. No, I mean you can you can take something like a new pricing grid and you can send it to five people who are your target customer and they might hate it or they might love it or they might say you're cheap or whatever, yeah. or it could just be any web page, uh, any idea, any landing page. And it might take you months to get the same quantitative results as it took you like an afternoon to get the qualitative. Yeah. And so I just always tell people start with the qualitative and iterate on that until you feel like you have something really good. And then if you need, if you're at some massive scale, and you need to do the quantitative before you can roll it out, then great, go do it. But like, try to get to a place that's close enough feel confident it's going to win through the qualitative because it almost always you can find out so much faster. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I'm somebody because of my my ad agency, you know, I'm constantly looking at click data and yeah. there's there's a huge limit to click stream data where you really don't know the context. You don't know, you know, you, you don't know quite a bit. I mean, I mean, you, you could have a page that has a high bounce rate because because it's such an amazing page that it answers everyone's questions and therefore all they need to do is leave the, yeah. the, the page. And so a hundred percent bounce rate could be a good thing. Um, or a hundred percent bounce rate could be that mean that everyone's very frustrated. I, I, I will say that, um, you know, as a longtime Wistia customer, one of the things I loved about it initially was, um, and I still like this is that, uh, at the time I started using Wistia, YouTube, when you would embed YouTube on a page, it was extremely difficult to get the event tracking data to show yes. up in Google Analytics. So you didn't yeah. know when anybody was hitting pause. You didn't know when people were, you know, yes. moving around the, the the scroll. And Wistia just seemed to work like magic. 
you didn't have to set it up at all. It, all yeah. that data would be there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's a like good example. Like YouTube does a much better job of that now than they used sure. to. So we have to think differently about that feature. And like, we're rolling on a new version of that feature in the next couple of months as an example, but also all the other stuff around it. And like for you as a customer, what is the part of that that was the most valuable? And then how do we give that to you in all the other areas that you were, you're using video? And like another good example is like, we launched editing into the platform a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Very simple editing, the simplest thing you can imagine. You know, you can trim stuff, you can cut it, you can take multiple things, put them together. It looks like a nonlinear editor, but it's designed for people who don't edit every day. That's actually the point. It's like, it's for a marketer. And so the goal is like, well, if you have the data on how this thing's performing and you can actually look and say like, hey, should I just adjust this now? Or should I put a different bumper at the front of this or whatever? And I don't need any permission to do it. That's gonna add a lot more value for you. So it's it's like what was what would have worked four years ago won't work by itself. But if you add the other right features and you understand the scope and the context of the problem the person's trying to solve, you can continue to advance and do things differently such you can drive much more value for the customer. But it, it takes really understanding the context. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other thing you said, which is so right on the money, that that bounce rate example is so good because people forget that. Like they forget like, oh, you can have a video and you just look at the engagement and the engagement goes down. And that's because people are so convinced right at the beginning, they just go and sign up for your product. <laughs> and that happens and that's the dream. But like, if you only look at the engagement data and you don't look at the context that you're missing out. And I think like, um, just the context mattering so much yeah. is a thing that's so easy to forget. And when you add it in there, it makes a lot of things much easier to understand why they're, why they're working or why they're not working. Yeah, actually, you know, now, now that you mentioned that I've, yeah, I've got a perfect example of that where I have a, a, an entire training company and a lot of the, uh, people that end up going and testing out the training company just determine that they don't want to get trained anymore. They just want to hire the agency to do it for them. And so therefore, you're, you know, that's a great example because the drop off is fine. It's a, no big deal if what you really want are more agency clients. Yeah. So okay. you sound like, so as CEO, it sounds like you're very product oriented. You know, you're still, it sounds like you're kind of maybe not doing the, the technical work, but you're, you're, you know, still, you know, very focused, you know, at the C-level on, you know, making sure that the product is reflective of your vision. Is that, is that fairly accurate? Yes, that is accurate. And I would say, uh, you know, one of my biggest mistakes is when I've not been close enough to it. Mm, I see. Um, uh, so yeah, sorry, you... no, I just say like, you know, as you're scaling, it's easy to think like, oh, the only problem we have is we have to rebuild this part of our marketing team. We have to scale this part of support. We need a new way of communicating as we grow, whatever. But it always just comes back to like, if you build valuable things for customers and you understand the customer and you keep shipping, that basically, that is the core engine. And all you can do, and if you do the other things in a world-class way, it makes an enormous difference in terms of this, the scale and success of your business. But if you don't keep pushing on product and you don't stay close enough to where you're really driving value for customers, you can't build something um, that has the same level of impact. Yeah. So where's Wistia heading over the next, you know, one year, five years? How far in advance do you think and do you plan for Wistia? Yeah, I mean, we, we plan, I think pretty, try to think pretty far in advance um, about like what's gonna happen in the market in the next like five years. Um, I, I think it's beyond that, it's very hard to, even five years is a lot. It's very hard to predict yeah. like, 
yeah. what things will look like. Um, or what I should say is it's not hard to predict what the future is. It's hard to predict when that's, that's what I, how I like to think about it. It's like, will there be self-driving cars? Yes, absolutely. It's coming. When will be the year that like a normal person feels confident getting into a self-driving car? I don't know. It, it could really be two years. It could be 10. It could be 15. I think we, that's the question. But will self-driving cars come? Like, are video, video games good enough? Are the cars in there good enough at not getting an accident that we can believe that our own cars? That we, yeah, of course it's going to happen. It's just a question of when. Um, so anyway, but for Wistia, it's all about, like, our goal, everything that we're doing is trying to make our platform as easy as possible for people who are using video, especially in marketing, but across their business, to not have to worry that they're getting a lot of value out of the videos that they're making, that they're making the right videos and those videos are in the right places. Um, and that they can have the right level of customization, the right analytics. Like it's all about making a platform that's so easy to use and so seamless that you just don't have to worry about other stuff. Like it's, it's in there and like the editing is a perfect example. It's like, you see a problem, a mistake, you can replace the video itself with Wistia. You've been able to do that forever. You can go in and trim it. You can change it. Um, you can make a video with Soapbox, our video creation tool. You can update it after the fact. Uh, you can take those analytics and you can understand video by video, person by person, how it's performing, but you'll be able to plug it and you already can do this, but even more like plugging it into the other marketing systems that you use so you can understand like the full level of impact. And so for us, it's just about making it even easier to make, to repurpose, to present uh, video. And um, the cool thing is like having been doing this for a little bit, just seeing how the production was one of the hardest parts of video by far was like, mm -hmm. how do you produce a video that you're proud of? Um, it takes budget, it takes time, it takes a script, it takes an expert and all that's still true. And you can, there's tons of videos, of course, your business is going to use where you're using an expert. Um, but now it's getting into the hands of every person. And so that changes the game on where you use it, how you think about return, what a, an audience size is. That's like a valuable audience size to be in front of all of that's, changed and i think that's just like super super exciting because video is something that people can use every day now yeah actually how is um how closely do you follow tiktok and how what, what's the influence or impact of tiktok and just kind of i mean the way i see it as somebody on the outside of video is that there's a whole generation of, of folks getting empowered to create videos using different tools and yeah and, and also just creating this new type of storytelling you know, around video, you know, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think that that's right. There's a new generation that basically is very confident taking risks, um, uh, in the content that they make and, um, doing it in really short clips and, and, and also being really focused on entertainment, yeah. right? Like TikTok is an entertainment platform yeah. and it's not like a personalization platform around selling your products yet. Mm -hmm. Although there will be a lot more of that, I think, as they monetize more. Uh, but it's much more about just like what keeps you entertained and it's second by second like i don't like this skip i don't like this skip i'm on this thing for three seconds guess what you just sent a signal to TikTok that you're interested in that type of thing and in the next 15 videos they're going to pull something that they think is similar and it's going to you're going to get these like you know these TikTok loops of of content just so quickly um and i think it's i think it's interesting exciting what it's doing on the creation side um in terms of getting more people getting comfortable making content mm -hmm. And then I think it's also interesting in terms of how you seed and can distribute content with TikTok because you don't have to have an existing audience, but if you make something that's remarkable for the right group, it gets, as things get seeded out pretty quickly, it can either, 
you know, get an enormous number of views or it can be completely ignored. Um, but that's pretty different than how like the YouTube algorithm works, right? Mm -hmm. The YouTube yeah. algorithm is all about this unique creator and their subscriber base and time watched per person. And if you're a channel that on average is a lot of, you, you, you have people spending a lot of time watching videos on YouTube, that means YouTube can serve more ads and therefore you get higher in the rankings. There's more organic stuff that goes to you. And TikTok is almost like, I know the creator matters, but from what I can tell much more about each individual piece of content. Yeah. And so that's very, very, very mm. different. Um, and uh, I mean, that model seems to be working well enough that now Facebook or Meta is changing the Instagram Reels approach to try to make it more like TikTok because they're so threatened by it. So mm -hmm. it's, it is interesting because it's almost like instead of selling personal data, which is what it's all been about, it's switching towards entertainment, mm -hmm. um, which is both good and bad, like bad for marketers who are trying to figure out who their exact customer is. <laughs> I think good for the consumer side that um, you're probably spending more time just like being entertained, probably bad because TikTok is, you know, a Chinese company and like, it's unclear about what's happening with the data on everybody that's going there. Good for them that that's happening. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a mix of all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So if you um, had advice to give to the next generation of CEOs, people who are thinking of starting companies perhaps now, uh, what would you say to them? Yeah, I would say if you are just, I would say you are going to be your own expert. You're going to be the expert at your business. You, sh you need to be the expert at your business and you should never put yourself in a position where you think that you're, you're not, or you need to rely on other people to be the expert for you. Mm -hmm. Like that's your job is like be the expert. And it's actually a, a possible thing to accomplish. Like it just takes time and effort and focus and constant self-learning. Um, another thing I would say is often if you, if you do find something that's working, uh, the world we live in today, um, the niches that we can find are so big. Don't screw it up by over optimizing and trying to do too many things at once. Like, you might try 10 things. One thing works, try to find what that one thing is and try to do that one thing over and over and over and over and over and make that one thing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and just in an interconnected internet world, the potential scale of any one thing is much greater than it was. And I think like that it's an easy mistake to make is to think, Oh, I have this figured out now I need to find another thing that's working when it, the answer might just be double down on what you're doing. Um, and then I would say, uh, you know, this is supposed to be fun um, building a company. And when it's working right, it should be like, you should be inspired by the people you're working with. You should be building cool shit that no one's done before. Uh, you should be doing things in different ways. You should be exploring. And I say this because like, if it's not fun, you, it is very, very hard to do it long enough to make a real impact. Um, what I like to say is like, uh, most hard problems take a long time to solve. And so figure out a way to make it so that long time isn't actually doesn't feel long figure out a way to make it where it's like, that's, that's the fun part. And I just think like, uh, you know, the people I know who I, I, at this point probably can name 30 entrepreneurs who were exactly right about ideas that were going to happen in markets that gave up because they were basically mm -hmm. too early or got tired. And, uh, if, if they had been fine, if all of those people had found a way to keep at it, I can't guarantee they would have been the leader in their space, but I can tell you, they probably would have all built significant businesses. And so I just think it's, very easy to underestimate just how important and valuable it is just to keep going 
And to do that, I think the work has to be fulfilling. It has to be fun. You have to be learning. I think that's fantastic advice. Thank you so much for being on the show, Chris. This has been a great episode of Road to CEO. Is there any way that you want people to uh, to reach out and follow you, maybe on Twitter, on LinkedIn? Yeah, you can find me on um, Twitter at C Savage on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on there as well. Um, if I can ever be helpful, let me know. You can always shoot me an email, chris at wistia.com. And uh, yeah, and obviously I love this stuff. Um, and oh, I have my own podcast, Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage, which is all about like a bunch of, you know, entrepreneurship, creative problem solving, the things that get me excited. And I, as you can tell, talk pretty loud as I get excited. So that's why the show is called that. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Well, I hope all the listeners go out, subscribe to that podcast. And of course, you know, I think you're crazy if you're not using Wistia for, uh, for video and all that. So go out and do that too. Thanks again for, for being here. Thanks, Will.